This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program. And ladies and gentlemen, we've got the whole band back together today. I'm joined by my good friends, Anne Greenhall. She is the deputy executive director uh, and known to all Wharton undergrads as the one and only Dr. G. And the good Mike Yuseem, director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management and a distinguished professor in our management department. So, Anne, how are you? Oh, I'm great, Jeff, and happy to be here. It's wonderful when the band is back. I agree. I agree. And Dr. Yassim, how are you? Doing great. And Jeff, just to bounce that back, how the heck are you? You know, uh, it's Friday. I feel pretty <laughs> good about that. It's Friday. We've got great new books uh, to talk about. And I get to talk about it with my good buddies. So I'm feeling pretty good. Awesome. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that new episodes of this show, Leadership in Action, premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So we're going to jump into uh, today's discussion um, because... You know, as we reflect on these last 18 months, uh, I think that we would all recognize that leaders from all walks of life have been navigating uncertainty thanks to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, As I say that out loud, thanks may be the wrong word, but um, we'll acknowledge the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. And today's guests say the most successful leaders in a crisis They don't wait and see what's happening and then respond. They make things happening by provoking. So we're joined today by Steve Goldbach and Jeff Tuff. They are principals at Deloitte and authors of the new book, Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. Steve and Jeff, welcome to Leadership in Action. Jeff, why don't you say hi to us first? Sure thing. Thanks for having us on. And I have to say, I'm intrigued. All this talk about the band. I'm wondering who plays what role in the band. And and, and are we sitting in on tambourine right now? Or do we, uh, what, what exactly will we be playing? Well, uh, these are very good questions, Jeff. I, I will say that Anne Greenhall leads our incredibly tight rhythm section. She's okay. kind of, she's kind of that, you know, steady bass guitar. Mike's going to come in with a number of flourishes. All right. I'm going to play rhythm guitar and you guys are going to sing and play lead. So, all right. You know, we're we're here to set the foundation. You're here to shine. That, that sounds like the best kind of plan. Fantastic. Steve, Jeff, how are you today? Michael, you have to understand that Jeff Tuff is the world's biggest deadhead. And oh. <laughs> when he has me over to his when he has me over to his place, he forces his four boys who he's created a little band with to all riff and jam together for company. So I don't know what it feels like to be Jeff. I know what it feels like to be Jeff Tuff's co-author. I'm not sure what it feels like to be his son forced to perform, uh, you know, uh, 
Grateful Dead pieces for company every time, but uh, the band back together is definitely an appropriate metaphor for Mr. Tough. All right, well, maybe what we'll do today is we'll call this leadership in action and company. (laughs) That's kind of the way that that we we can evolve (laughs) and expand here. Um, Let me say uh, just a little bit more about both of you, Steve and Jeff, and we'll, um, you know, we'll certainly... uh, you know, certainly be able to get into this discussion really quickly here. So um, Jeff, uh, aside from being the biggest deadhead possibly at Deloitte, um, holds various leadership roles across the firm's sustainability, innovation, and strategy practices. Uh, And Steve, uh, Steve Goldbach, principal also at Deloitte and serves as the firm's chief strategy officer. Now, one of the things that we should point out here is while um, while the new book is, is just out this week, um, your co-authors uh, also of the national bestseller. This was this your debut album, perhaps. Uh, that, was, that was the debut. All right, and that that book is Detonate: Why and How Corporations Must Blow Up Best Practices and Bring a Beginner's Mind to Survive. So, so if I can, then, like, like perhaps any good um, music fan would, before we get to today's work, Jeff, I would love to ask you about the previous book, uh, Detonate. And the reason, or the particular question that that I wanted to ask you about it is this focus on a beginner's mind. Uh, one of the things that Mike and Anne and I do here at the Wharton School is provide a host of experiential learning programs for our students, undergraduates, MBAs, managers, and executives. And often we're trying to put these learners, these often very accomplished, very intelligent learners into unfamiliar situations. And we find ourselves encouraging them to take on the beginner's mind. So um, as as you and Steve thought about uh, the book Detonate, what role does the beginner's mind play for corporations? Yeah, so I'll, I'll say beginner's mind as a concept actually ironically was perfectly appropriate for our um, first attempt at writing a book. De- Detonate came out back in 2018, although Steve and I have have worked together and known each other for decades at this point. And it was born out of our client experiences, basically. After many, many years in the world of strategy consulting, we had interacted with leaders of every stripe. Usually our clients are some of the most successful executives and the most successful companies in the world. But as we reflected on our experiences when, when we had this opportunity to write the book, it, it struck us just how often these leaders were overly confident in what they had learned in the past and kind of the ruts that they had been in for so long that increasingly they were missing the opportunities to create advantage for their organizations. And it became pretty obvious. I I can tell you more about Detonate the book if you're interested, but it became pretty obvious as we started to unpack that, that the, the thing that was happening was that essentially our clients were becoming too sure of themselves and too sure of the data that they had accumulated over time as experts and not taking advantage of what it means to actually bring a beginner's mind to the table and and to be able to look at things in new ways. And so Detonate is a book about actually blowing up the playbooks of the past, blowing up the rules that we've lived with um, forever in business or in, in various different industries and making room for those beginners who actually will bring us a new source of insight and a, and a new new way of operating in a way that will allow us to actually keep up with the pace of change in the world. And it's a it's a it's a general theme that we've carried through from detonate into provoke. And uh, I'm sure we'll dig into it in more detail. 
Thanks, Jeff. And and Steve, let's bring you into the conversation here. Um, you know, as, as Jeff talks about um, the need for a beginner's mind, I, I do see the direct connection into provoke and, and this notion of, of fatal human flaws or some of the biases that that guide leaders. So could you describe to us um, some of these fatal fatal human flaws or, or biases and the ways in which um, they aren't serving leaders in the ways yeah. they, they could? Great. Yeah, so the, the the basic premise on the aspect of a fatal flaw and bias and the biases is there's a number of well-known uh, documented cognitive biases that uh, effectively interact with the way in which organizations tend to deal with them with themselves and deal with each other to create blinders uh, that effectively narrow an organization's peripheral vision and create an inability to see trends shifting from a matter of if they'll happen to a matter of when they'll happen. So these are well-documented cognitive biases like the overconfidence bias, which is a bias that humans have to be more confident in their point of view than they perhaps ought to be. A bias towards the status quo, where we have a human preference for you know, w what the world is like today because a departure of what the world is like today is perceived as a loss and, and human beings are generally loss averse. Um, or uh, a less well-known one like the affect heuristic bias, which is a bias to things that provoke an emotional response. Um, so uh, a good story that I like to tell about uh, an emotional response was I did a bunch of work in the telecom and video cable programming uh, about 12 or 13 years ago. And we discovered the very, very, very early kernels of a, a small group of consumers who were uh, who, who were exhibiting what we now call cord cutting behavior. They wanted, they wanted, uh, they wanted high speed internet, but they didn't want to buy all that fancy video programming that comes that comes with it. They just wanted uh, naked internet, if you will. And the executives, uh, one of the executive groups that we spoke to, basically came up with a, the reaction that said 1.75%. Ah, oh, we can lose 1.75% any day. It's no big deal, as opposed to thinking about it as a bellwether for what behavior might be in the future. And you can imagine if you were sitting back in 2007 and had the ability to address that segment well, you could have created what we now know as Netflix, um, which was created but had a vastly different business model. And if you were a giant in that business, you certainly would have had an advantage had you had you started. So. I, th those biases are not because leaders are evil or stupid or anything like that. They're just because they happen to be human beings. But when you couple those cognitive biases, which with the way that we behave when we get together, like we want to avoid embarrassment in meetings, right? By putting difficult questions on the table, we'll take things offline. Uh, all those types of ways that we behave, coupled with those cognitive biases, make it really hard to see uh, to uh, see and take action against those trends. Great. Th thank you, Steve. And uh, I'm going to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. 
I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and we have two guests today, the co-authors Steve Goldbach and Jeff Tuff, who are principals at Deloitte and authors of the new book, Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. Anne, over to you. Oh, thank you, Jeff. And uh, Jeff Tuff, Stephen Goldbach, a pleasure to have you on the show. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the writing of the book. Um, am I right in understanding that having spent a good bit of time thinking about the beginner's mindset, that you made that connection to the fatal flaws. It's, I'm hearing it's almost as if we could have a beginner's mindset, we'd be able to uncover those unconscious biases that we have. Then how did you go about writing the book from there? If that was the, the germ of the idea, what what happened next? And maybe, Steve, I'll go to you first, and then Jeff, love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I would say Detonate highlighted the need for a beginner's mind, and Provoke starts to get at some of the very specific things that organizations can do to make it more likely that that's the, that that's the outcome. Um, and so, you know, Detonate said there's a bunch of stuff that we tend to do, a bunch of best practices that are, you know, best practices by definition, that's what you're trying for, will result in average performance because everyone will follow you and do them. Uh, so they're not a path to success. And, and we want we were advocating the use of a beginner's mind and had lots of examples on it. And Provoke was the exploration of the how. And why don't I let Jeff pick up the writing aspect of it from there? <laughs> well, anyone anyone seeing us behind the scenes writing a book, because Steve and I actually do write our own books, which um, it may be a dirty little secret that that's not always the case, but um, it would have been a humorous set of uh, sitcom episodes had you actually seen us uh, writing and discussing mainly over video since this book was largely written during the pandemic. I'd be happy to go into some of the ideas in more detail, but writing at the time of a pandemic actually really did help coalesce a lot of the ideas we had um, running around in this book. It, you know, the, the, the two main portions of the book, well, there's three sections to it. The third one is all about some provocateurs we were able to identify in the world. But the first portion sets up the, this notion of the fatal flaws. The second identifies actions you can take in order to remove those organizational blinders and better prepare yourself in for whatever the future may unfold in a world of uncertainty. Living through exploring those ideas during a pandemic, which is, I think, one of the very first times that we as a society, let alone we as human beings, felt uncertainty viscerally. Like we yeah. conceptually, we've always kind of thought about it, but we have just lived through and we continue to live through a massively uncertain time. Yeah. Given that we were operating in that environment, it really helped pull together a lot of the ideas and demonstrate the things that you could do in order to take advantage of a beginner's mind and address uncertainty in a way that that actually allows action. Oh, so good. Well, since Mike is the one among the three of us, Jeff Klein and myself, who's written the most books, Mike, I'm going to ask you to have the follow-up question before our soft break. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, uh, Steve and Jeff, great to have you on the program. And I'm going to pick up on the subtitle of Provoke with the starting question. And here it is. Um, on balance, and you said as much, I think, at the outset, clients, your clients, business managers, business executives, on, on average, change more slowly than their markets. 
So does, <laughs> for starters, uh, does that sound right? What, what do you think? Jeff, let's start with you and then Steve. Sure, that, that absolutely sounds right to me. And I think you've nailed the audience that, we, that we're going after with this, Mike. It, you know, it's a book that we believe is relevant for everyone, but it's particularly relevant for really successful executives at scaled successful organizations. And the premise behind Provoke is that we are right now, not just in the course of the pandemic, but over the course of the last six, seven years and probably into the future, we're living through a real change in the nature of the, uh, or the, the context in which we operate. It's a time where we're changing from being governed primarily, not just the business world, but more broadly, primarily by linear change to increasingly by exponential change. And that means that we've gone from a world where we've been able to help our companies succeed and help ourselves succeed when we manage risk out of making decisions to one, as we've talked about, where we need to be managing against uncertainty. The most successful executives who have grown up in their organizations are success, are, are, became successful because they learned how to take risk out of making decisions in a world of linear change. That's no longer going to help that much. Yeah. Steve, do you want to add? And then I'm going to ask one final question. Yeah, I, I, I would say the the I, I don't think that the, the the nature of your question sort of said, like, is it would it be a surprise to our clients? that they feel like the markets around them are moving faster than their organizations are, I would say no. If you surveyed met, you know, most executives, they would say, we need to move faster than we're, than we're moving. We want our organizations to be able to adapt more quickly. So I don't think it's a big reveal. I think the question is, so, the question that we often get is, so how do I do that? What's the, what's the thing that we need to do in order to make that make that the case. And, and that's sort of at the backbone of both detonate and provoke, which is the actions that you've got to take. That's how do you create the beginner's mind? How do you start to create what we describe as minimally viable moves um, in order to just constantly stay ahead of the, try to stay ahead of the change. And we see this with evidence that most of the disruption that gets taken place comes from outside industries as opposed to within industries, because companies aren't moving fast enough within those within those barriers. So Steve and Jeff, very quick follow-up on that. The people you work with, they've already got the point and they want your help in figuring out, okay, the market's changing faster than I am. I've got to change. And what prevents that, to borrow the subtitle of, of Provoke, is by overcoming fatal human flaws. And implicit in that, I'll make it a question, you're optimistic about human nature. The most experienced executive with some coaching, some guidance, some mentoring, some consulting, indeed can overcome those fatal flaws. What do you think? Jeff, let's start with you. I, I absolutely believe that to be the case. And I'll go back to something Steve hinted at before. These are not dumb, ill-intentioned people. They, they are genuinely intelligent, sometimes brilliant people who are simply trapped in an old way of operating. And so we've found through the course of our careers, I think that just making issues nameable, making the reality that we are subject to, for example, an availability bias when we're selecting data and making that discussable and something that you talk about outright on how to prevent it from, from actually limiting what we do is the very first step. You usually have a pretty eager set of, of people to try things out once they recognize what the problem is because they are really well-intentioned. That's one of our fundamental beliefs about humans. Yeah, that's great. I, th I think Jeff said it, people are hungry to figure out how to get past their fatal flaws. And if there's one method that the two of you have developed 
to help people overcome those fatal flaws. What what is your secret? Yeah, Mike, I wish I could I wish I could come on your program and say that we've got the magic pill for nine ninety nine yeah. uh, that that every executive could just take. It, it, look, just because it is addressable, but it's got to be done in a customized way for every organization. The, the leader's responsibility is to design the system that will create the preconditions for change to get the actions that we're taking. That's not something that is like a, is playbookable. You've got to be able to say what's the barriers to us acting in a different way and then create the systems around it. Great point. Jeff? We were talking a lot about individual leaders um, and the biases that can um, inhibit or influence the ways that leaders make decisions uh, and ultimately manage the enterprise. Now, we all know that leaders operate within a context, right? And one of those contexts is the organization. So, um, Jeff, maybe to start with you, um, I wonder if you could describe for us some of the organizational tendencies um, which you uh, discuss in the book, which will often inhibit the kind of provocative leadership that uh, that you call for. Sure, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, and then invite Steve to add others on that he likes as well. But you know, the first thing I'd say about the concept of organizational tendencies, similar to the fatal flaws, the individual fatal fatal flaws, is that they're a systems problem. They they feed off one another. They're intertwined. It's impossible to pull apart the organizational tendencies from the individual fatal flaws. And unless you address the entire system, you're not going to make much progress. So what I mean by what do I mean by that? We talked in the in the first part of the program about individual fatal flaws like the availability bias or the overconfidence bias. What happens when you bring those biases to the table in an organization is you get, for example, people wanting to avoid embarrassment in meetings. They don't want to actually call others out because it may make them feel bad because they are overconfident. And you don't want to be embarrassed yourself because you are using available information at your disposal and the same information that everyone else has. And if someone calls you out, then perhaps your um, the, the, the what you have information, what you have access to readily available uh, may actually be what may end up being proven wrong. And so people kind of they quiet down. They they try to avoid conflict, and you start hearing things like, "Let's take it offline. Let's let's reconnect afterwards. We don't need to address that right now." Which in turn leads to ever more scheduling of half hour slots of meetings with bilateral conversations where there's no group agreement, and then of course there's no time for um, for leaders to actually sit and think and do real work, and you get this spiraling effect where. All of these flaws, all of these organizational tendencies create a, a vicious cycle that leads you to the biggest problem of all, which is the structural dismantling of curiosity of organizations. That is the issue. Ultimately, all these things play in a way where we have stopped being curious as organizations, and that is what's fatal in the face of uncertainty. This Steve, if you would, can you can you expand on this? The structural dismantling of curiosity, which, by yeah. the way, is a yeah. great album name. Right. <laughs> um, I was going to say, yeah, Steve, if, if if you know, a for our for our managers, for our small business owners out there, um, what am I looking for? You know, Jeff talked a little bit about over politeness and embarrassment, you know, but what are some of these other signals? Um, and then 
if you would please expand upon the this this core issue of curiosity well, yeah well let's 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 take a very specific example of the structural dismantling of uh, organizational curiosity what's the first line item in your budget to get cut right and that line item line item in your budget that gets cut so what happens when you create a budget everyone goes off and comes up with their you know their wish list of things that they could go do and uh, and then you all get together and the finance team is going through all the line items and someone comes to the a line item that says exploratory customer research. And then someone says, well, what are we studying? Well, we're not studying anything specific. We're, we're trying to observe customers and trying to figure out what their needs are. Well, what are we gonna learn from that? We don't know because we don't know what we're gonna go observe. Well, how is that gonna lead to revenue next year? I. The realistic answer is I can't answer that question. Well, let's put it in the, you know, if we've got money pile and we never have enough money to fund that kind of stuff. And so it's the, the, the kind of the kind of behavior like that, which is not necessarily ill intention. Of course, there is limited funding for things, but we don't protect the stuff that is around exploratory, that is exploratory in nature, that is disconnected from immediate revenue. And so therefore it's no wonder that we've got these blinders that say, oh shoot, we didn't see this trend coming. You know why? Because you weren't looking. Um, and uh, you know, what's another example? Uh, oh, actually, let me stop for a second there and let, I'll let you ask another question. I got another one if you wanna go there. Awesome. Mike, why don't I bring you into the conversation here? So Stephen, uh, Jeff, I'm gonna, kind of uh, lay out a, a route that you've probably been down many times with a question at the end. You've been called into enterprise, for-profit, maybe non-profit, X, and maybe the person who called you in is the chief strategist, could be the chief executive, maybe even the chief financial officer. And that person says, great, I'm going to read your book, but I've heard you speak about all these fatal flaws. I've got it but I'm part of a huge enterprise. We have 110,000 employees. And how do I roll this out? How do I make it stick? Not only in the top ranks, but in the middle ranks and beyond. So uh, Jeff, maybe starting with you and then over to Steve, uh, how does the organization get enmeshed in, in this kind of change? Yeah, so I'll actually start my answer rewinding to the previous book, Detonate, where one of the core ideas in that is you can't make any progress until you start to identify and challenge the orthodoxies of the organization. So until both executives and employees recognize just what the norms are, whether they're written down or not, it's just kind of the stuff in the ether and which ones should actually be surmounted, you're not going to be able to make any sort of progress. So usually, and now let me turn to Provoke and some of the ideas in Provoke, Usually one of the central issues that prevent organizations and individuals from seeing that trend that, that is shifting from being a matter of if to a matter of when, which Steve talked about before, is they focus too much time on predicting the future or trying to predict the future. They look forward and they say, I think that's the dominant version of how the world is going to unfold. And I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket. I'll, I'll run some sensitivities around it, some upsides, some downsides. So there's a range of possible outcomes, but I pretty much know the world is going to turn out that way. We now have ample evidence from every single industry out there that having linear singular versions of how the world is gonna turn out is a really bad idea. So one action to start taking is introduce some humility into the organization, recognize we're never gonna be able to predict with any degree of accuracy the way the future is gonna unfold, 
So instead, what we need to do is think in terms of scenarios or possibilities instead of predictions. And that's the type of, of real hardwired mechanics that we can put into organizations that actually can be programmatic to help overcome some of the orthodoxies that I talked about before. Jeff, that's great. So Steve, over to you quickly on the same question. Uh, let's say we're in the frame of mind that uh, Jeff has just outlined so well. And then the question that comes back to you, should I begin with the C-suite? Should I begin with uh, the front lines? Should I make a case to the CEO, maybe even the board? So where, where are going to be your, your main levers of change to get beyond those fatal flaws? Yeah, I, I think Jeff and I have come to the conclusion that it's really hard to drive change from within the organization. And you must, uh, of the kind of change that we're describing, you must have the most senior leaders on board. And, here, and here's why. Right. You've got a let, let's say you start with a well-intentioned group from sort of the skunk works group from within an organization. And then they get a little bit of heat and light on what they're doing. And then they come up to an executive who's not necessarily on board with the notion of change. And that executive starts ask, asking questions that basically reinforce all the orthodoxies that Jeff talked about, like like the ones I described earlier, like how are we going to make money on this next year? And how is it, you know, what are we going to, you know, what are our competitors doing? Are they doing the same thing? And all the questions that kill innovative ideas. And so we believe you got to start with the senior leadership, and that's the C-suite and the board, being on board with we're going to do something different. And the way you drive that change is by asking different styles of questions that make it psychologically safe for folks in the organization to be able to answer, you know, I don't know, but we could test it as a legitimate answer as opposed to I need to go study it so I'm bulletproof, uh, so my PowerPoint is bulletproof with the meeting with the executive. And that's the kind of environment that you need to create in order to derive the kind of change that we're envisioning. Totally. And if I could just build on that super quick, Steve, I, th there's it may not be actually a nuance. It may be dead obvious to your listeners what, what Steve is referring to here. But what Steve just described is different from what we what typically we think of as being change being driven from the top down. What Steve is talking about is creating the enabling environment to allow real attempts at the beginner's mind, real attempts at, at doing things differently to start to take root in various different parts of the organization. It's got to be enabled from the top, but it's got to be driven from the bottom or the middle, if you will. Super. Great, Jeff, do you want the baton back for a minute or should we go to Anne? Yeah, well, I'll briefly take the baton, but really just to tell our listeners that you're listening to Leadership in Action. It's business radio, it's Sirius XM 132. Uh, and I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Anne Greenhall and Mike Useem. Our guests today are Steve Goldbach and Jeff Tuff who are the co-authors of the new book, Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. Anne, over to you. Thank you, Jeff. All right, Stephen, Stephen, Jeff, uh, Mike asked you a hypothetical. I'd like you to talk about Warby Parker, because I know from taking a look at your book that Warby Parker comes out with good marks on, uh, in, on embodying what you call the five principles of provocation. So let's see, Steve, how about you? Talk about Warby Parker. Yeah, well, I think the the, the Warby Parker example we like, it, we like be, because 
their insight that they have was their insight that they had was that the uh, multi-stage supply chain and distribution models that had been in, in force before were inherently inefficient. And they thought that they could there was a set of customers who, if they could demonstrate that they could get quality uh, eye, quality eyewear, perhaps less well-known brands, but for considerably considerably cheaper, they would, uh, they would be able to provoke a change in, in, customer in customer behavior. There was no way to prove the extent to which they could do it. They just had to go and, and try it. So we like that example because it's the kind of thing that you, you can't, you, you couldn't have predicted would work. Um, you couldn't have predicted necessarily would work without just putting it in action. So we like the ways that they tested it by sending folks you know, multiple pairs of glasses to try out. Another example we love in that space, by the way, Anne, is when Uber was just getting started, so this is back in the day, the way they tested it was not to sort of do a survey of would you get in a car and let a stranger drive you around because, you know, the kind of answer to that question you would. It was by saying people do get into cars with strangers today. It's called a cab. Um, and so they, 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 they know we know that they will behave that way. What we need to understand is to what extent they will do it with what wait time. So they put and paid for cars to be on the road in a manner that replicated the actual experience that they would have at scale. So they made sure that the way so both Warby and Uber replicated the model by trying it in the real world as opposed to by, you know, just trying to do some sort of, you know, survey or test of it. Yeah, Steve, that's great. And Jeff Tuff, a follow-up for you. In the example of Warby Parker and Uber, we're talking about innovative startups that become highly successful. You said at the top of the hour that your main audience is an audience of established firms with successful executives. So how do you then translate that beginner's mindset in a startup to that established firm. Yeah, so I, um, Steve will laugh because my I, I do a lot of work in the energy space these days. And so most of the examples I go to actually come from the energy space, which I think is one of the most fascinating and dynamic environments that, that exist out there today because we have now moved through the question of if we are going to have an energy transition in which we decarbonize as, as a society, to a matter of when, like we're living mm -hmm. through that phase change even as we speak. Mm -hmm. So some of the moves that we've seen some energy companies make in the world where, for example, and I'm not gonna name names given we serve many of them, but there are some companies out there who have been long established um, business models around extracting carbon from the earth and selling it on the open market. That's been their business model for literally right. decades, if not over a hundred years. You see some of those companies going and doing something differently, taking a stance, saying they're going to represent something different in the world, and they're actually going to get to net zero by whatever year it is that they've chosen. That's a provocative move that sometimes in some parts of the world pulls with yeah. it regulation and real consumer sentiment. In other parts yeah. of the world, it doesn't. And the, the interesting reality in the energy space is we're seeing different dynamics in different parts of the world and in different sectors and the only way that we're understanding what's going to work where is by these big scale companies taking action. Of yeah. course, any sort of energy transition needs to be enabled by the right renewable technologies coming in at the right price points, but we're mm -hmm. not going to find our way to a new infrastructure 
globally as an energy society unless some of these big players start doing the types of things that even the, the really, really small Warbies and Ubers of the world are doing naturally because they are mm -hmm. di disruptors. Yeah, so I'm gonna to pass to Jeff, but in a word, it seems as though those large organizations need to embrace a kind of creative destruction, be willing to implode in order to kind of rise up out of the Phoenix as a successful new organization. Absolutely, and to get there by actually provoking a reaction from the real yeah. outside world. Any of these companies, if they sat back and they did an analysis of what their shareholders would want to hear at any given point in time, they'd easily be able to convince themselves that there's a long-tailed uh, oil and gas and, and we don't need to worry mm -hmm. about it much. But the boldest companies are actually going on public record and provoking a reaction. That That is, as Steve and I are, are often found um, to say, the only way you can start to add contours to uncertainty, because it's yeah. by, by definition unknowable, the only way to add contours to it is to go take action and see what the reaction is. Oh, I and, can I jump in for one sec? There's, I think that the, in, 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 in this conversation, there is a real tendency that we need to shift. Um, and this is something that I've, in, in my strategy role at Deloitte, I've talked about with our board and our management team, we need to stop uh, uh, you know, we as a society need to stop assuming that the status quo is riskless, right? Like yeah. in, in every in every kind of conversation that goes on in the, there, there's an implicit assumption that the new thing, the new shiny idea that someone has is really risky because the stat and the status quo is super safe, right? And, and that's and that's never made explicit because usually if you say Hey, do you see any risk in just doing the same thing we've been doing and hoping it continues to succeed? Everyone would go, yeah, that's silly. But the way almost every discussion about some innovation uh, or some doing something different is framed is, boy, that seems really hard or that seems really that seems really risky. And instead, we should say, well, how is that? Is that more or less? Is trying something new? more or less risky than doing the same thing that we've been doing, I think more people would say, yeah, doing the same thing is not doing something is pretty darn is pretty darn risky. And and there was something that came to mind this morning. We're, we're going to be talking to a, a, a longstanding regulated company in a few weeks and they're having they're struggling with how to do this. And so it's something the something new feels risky, but it's not as risky. And the status quo doesn't feel risky, but it actually is really risky. And getting to know the difference between those two things, what feels risky but isn't, and what is risky but doesn't feel it, is really important to future leadership. Yeah, yeah. so good. Jeff, Jeff Klein. Thank you, Anne. You know, Jeff and Steve, I, I find myself returning to your statement earlier about creating that enabling environment and then really... Having ha having change being driven from uh, from within, you know, and and in certain um, pockets of the organization, you know, for our listeners who are thinking about their own organization and and wanting to address some of these organizational tendencies, but then also find those agents of change who are who are best suited to this provoking. Um, stance. I wonder, and Steve, maybe we can start with you here. Um, what are the kinds of qualities that you would look for 
um, in a a leader who is going to bring this provoking uh, stance to his or her work? Yeah, I I don't you know I don't know that there are you know I think that there's a general belief that there's some kind of singular model of leadership that works in all that works in all settings, and I think Jeff and I uh, try not to subscribe to that that there is this singular model. I think it's very organizationally driven and who who fits well and generally leadership is well defined by the team that surrounds that leader so there could be a leader that's great at um cre- i've seen leaders that are great because they come up with lots of ideas and i've seen other leaders that are great because they enable people to have the ideas and they get behind them mm-hmm. um and yet other leaders are great because they become a great check step on others who are um, others who are innovative within their organization to make sure that they're well thought through and executed well. So I don't, I don't think there's a singular model. I think most teams need to be balanced across the dimensions of idea generation, you know, ch- you know, opposition, checking on the ideas and driving and also integration of, of the personalities on the, on the team. And I think the leader has to figure out what role she plays in, you know, in, in bringing that together and make sure that she's surrounding herself with all kinds of uh, other things. And the and the provocateurs we profile in the book that maybe uh, Jeff Tuff wants to may, may want to say a few words about all sort of drove in a different way. They, they all had different personalities based on the situations that they found themselves in. Jeff, yeah, would you like to accept that invitation? <laughs> that was a, <laughs> a subtle invitation, <laughs> a subtle invitation, Steve. Thank you. Um, I, so, yes, I'll pick that up in a moment. I do just want to comment, though, that it's easy to read our book title and to think of what it means to be provocative and imagine that what we mean is to be a great leader, you have to drive, you have to provoke others, you have to you have to get reactions in a way that kind of gets people's hackles up, which is a common misperception about what it means to provoke. Actually, I would say more often, the leaders that we see as great provocateurs, and certainly the three provocateurs we, we profiled, were not necessarily drivers. They were people who understood what model of action to use at, in different stages of time. So we, we did profile three amazing people and amazing organizations in the third part of the book, I'll, I'll name them very quickly, and then um, we can dig into one or two of them if you're interested. But uh, Debbie Beal, who founded the Posse Foundation, many of you may know about the Posse mm-hmm. Foundation, which uh, essentially is, is out to change the face of leadership in America by giving uh, opportunities and especially access to top-tier universities to um, great leaders in their high school years who otherwise wouldn't have had those opportunities. Fascinating model massively outstanding results. And Debbie is co-founder, sorry, founder of Posse, and she's been running that organization for over 30 years at this point. Uh, Ryan Gravel, who is the visionary behind the Atlanta Beltline, a, um, which is a long-term project to essentially reimagine what urban living might look like by creating physical space for people from different walks of life to interact with one each uh, with one another as human beings. It's a, it's a, really interesting story and and in particular with ryan's story it's it's the story of someone who was in it for the long haul and knew how to dodge and weave and sometimes just sit sit back and let city politics run their course to achieve the the ultimate outcome that he was aiming for the the third person we profiled is a woman by the name of uh, valerie rainford who 
runs a company called Ellery Talent Strategies these days. She is hired by scaled successful organizations to introduce the whole notion, uh, to introduce and then enable the whole notion of DEI and what DEI brings with it, which is a central premise to this whole book, and that is cognitive diversity. What Valerie has been able to achieve first in her um, earlier career in the finance industry at the Fed and, and at uh, JP Morgan, but now as an outside advisor coming into big uh, big companies to, to bring the systems to enable DEI to take hold and bring that cognitive di diversity is probably the singular or the single most important thing that we can recommend to any organization that's trying to become more provocative. Absolutely. Jeff, and, and thank you for that. I know our listeners will appreciate um, being able to dive into those examples and profiles um, as, as they dig in to provoke how leaders shape the future by overcoming fatal human flaws. Um, we're, we're drawing close to the end of our time here. And so before we wrap up, we would like to uh, initiate our ritual here, and that is our after action review. Um, Mike, in a moment, I'm going to turn this over to you for, for a first comment and then go around the horn. And, and again, the, the frame for this is, you know, in a, in a, a brief amount of time, we'll give you maybe 30 seconds each or so. Um, can you give us, Mike, a, a headline, a highlight, something you really want our listeners to um, take with them from this conversation? Jeff, yes. Two highlights. Number one, we began with this, and that is markets seem to change faster than people who leave their enterprises in a given market. It's it's true. We know it. We got to do something about it. And point number two is I love the optimism of Jeff and Steve. We share it that while there are all these pitfalls out there, fatal errors we can make through a lot of hard thought and focus, we can overcome all the above and change uh, our, our, our historic course. So change before uh, the world changes you, and then you can make the change you're going to have to make. So that's, uh, let's see, going around the horn, I think Anna's next. All right. Thank you, Mike. All right. Are you ready? Um, I've got in my head, thinking about change in the past, the change is linear, and that we manage risk and that as leaders, we react in organizations, we try to maintain the status quo. That's the past, the present. Think about change as being exponential and that we can embrace it rather than try to manage risk, embrace uncertainty, and in that way, be uh, provocateurs and create the future. All right. And Jeff, over to you, and then we'll, we'll click to Steve here. Well, so as you might imagine, I've had a little bit more time to think about these things than, uh, than uh, our, our three hosts today. Um, so I'll, I'll simply summarize it in actually a quote that um, this sounds tremendously awful for, for someone to quote themselves. But this a lot of these ideas coalesced into a poem that I wrote for my four sons at one point. And I'm not going to read you the whole poem, but I'll read you. I'll tell you the, one of the quotes from it that was directly inspired from the work that Steve and I did together. Meet uncertainty with curiosity and a bias for action instead of worry and a bias for analysis. That's good. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> and know. Steve, to you. Well, the, 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 la the only thing I'd say is that I, I do want to highlight something Jeff said that I think we only touched on in passing, which is that cognitive diversity, which is underpinned by real world diversity, is the linchpin 
to making sure that you can, you know, get rid of those organizational blinders. Why? Because when you bring people from different walks of life who have had different sets of experiences, they see problems differently and they, as a result, get to better answers to complex and new problems. And so diversity is not just a moral uh, imperative, which we believe it is. It is a business imperative. And so go out and make your teams cognitive diver cognitively diverse by making them actually diverse. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Mike. Um, you know, our listeners, um, as you know, you think about the conversation uh, that we have today, um, we want to encourage you. The book is, is just out this week. So we want to encourage you to take a look at Provoke How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. Um, and you know, Jeff and Steve, we, we just want to say to both of you, you know, thanks so much for being guests on the show today um, and, and for bringing both your perspective as well as your partnership to bear in this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Oh, th Thank thanks you. for having us on. It was great to be part of it. Okay. Thanks, guys. Listeners, if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. And we'd like to say a special thank you to our guests, Jeff Tuff and Steve Goldbach. And I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Mike Useem. And you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 